Father, we are once again privileged to be under your word. We are once again privileged to be instructed by your word and through the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Father, these words are not just concepts or moral tales that we can choose or not choose to apply. But these are the very words of God. These are from the very minds of God, mind of God, I pray. May you, Holy Spirit, convince our minds of the veracity and the importance and the power of these words. May these words change us. May these words deliver us from the hands of our enemies. May these words save us. May these words sanctify us. May these words uh, testify of your greatness in our hearts. All these things, in the name of our one true King, we pray. Amen. Sorry. So, yesterday I spent some time with my daughter, because my son had to go to JMU or Virginia Tech, same thing, right? So they had to go either one of those, I think it was JMU, right? Anyway, so it was like, you know, I had a, you know, I had my daughter for the morning and in the afternoon. So I was driving her around, and I was listening to a radio podcast about superheroes. And my daughter asked me, Daddy, why do you love superheroes? And I said, that was a very good question. Why did I love superheroes? So I had a little bit of pondering of why I loved them so much. Because I loved them since I was, what, like five or something? And it's been going on for the 40 plus years. The question is, why do I love superheroes so much? Is it because I'm a forever man-child and never mature? Perhaps. But I think more importantly, I, I, the story of superheroes appeals to me, not just me, but to a lot of people out there. You know, like, you know, Black Panther's nominated for Best Picture, hooray. And I think superheroes appeal to us, at least to me, is because they are pretty much a deliverance story. There are people that need to be rescued, and this powerful superhero, who's compassionate and good, come and rescues them. That's the narrative of every superhero, right? Whether it's DC, Marvel, whether it is anime, maybe not Evangelion, that was just weird, right? Maybe, Sean appreciates that. Maybe it's for Evangelion. Like most of hero narratives out there is that. There, there are people in need, people of destruction, the people need to be rescued, and the godlike figure comes and rescues them, right? And that narrative never gets old. And I think that appeals to me at least is because it reflects, right, the gospel story, the truth of the gospel. Because Christianity at its core is a rescue story, is a rescue mission. Other religions out there, what they have in common is this. They say there is this universal truth, and either a, a priest or an imam or a rabbi tells you the truth, and you go apply the truth. I tell you the truth, you listen to the truth, you apply the truth, repeat. And most of the religions out there says that's what religion is about. And if you listen well enough, and if you practice effectively enough, that will lead, us, lead you to salvation. That's more or less what every religion is, right? Whether it is Islam, whether it is Buddhism, whether it is Judaism, that's what it is. I tell you the truth, you listen to the truth, you repeat it, and that leads to salvation. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is a religion that says, you and I need to be rescued. We need to be ultimately rescued, yes, 
but we also need to be rescued every day. And that is why I think superhero stories appeal to me, because it reflects what the gospel is about. And today, the long, the, the long verses that we read, Genesis chapter 14, um, Genesis chapter 14, it's about a rescue story. It's about Abram rescuing his nephew, Lot. So let's talk about what's happening. We're not going to dwell too long on the background of what is happening, but we just need to know, you know what, what is happening in the background for us to know why Lot needs to be rescued. So let's go. So in the land of Canaan, where God promised Abraham, there are a lot of tribes, right? There are a lot of tribes living in that land. There are a lot of kings living in that land, right? But among all the kings who were living in the land, there was one big daddy. And his name was, how do you pronounce it, Dana? Chador Lamur, Chador Lamur, Chador Lamur, king of Elam. Chador Lamur, king of Elam, king of, king of Elam, he was the godfather of the tribes. He was the muscle man. Therefore, like today's society, like the Korean mafias and Japanese mafia, if you're a godfather, you come and you pay tribute to the godfather, which means you give the godfather protection money. You got to hand over to, to Chador, Chador Lamur, king of Elam, all these cities have to pay tribute to this guy by giving them, giving him money, right? Are you with me? And they were doing it for like 12 years, 13 years. And just like the American Revolution, they go, wait a minute, why are we giving this guy all this money? We don't want to give him tribute. We don't want to give him taxes, taxation without representation. We aren't going to pay. And what does Big Daddy do? He says, oh yeah, I'm going to make you pay. So he and his neighbor buddies, um, king of Goyim, right, king of Shinar, and king of Eleazar, he, he, the king of Elam calls his, his three buddies, and the four of them goes into the land of Canaan, and they start collecting. He goes city by city, tribe by tribe, demolishes them, right? And they were an unstoppable force, just like the New England Patriots. They were unstoppable. They were Bill Belichick and, and Mr. Kraft rolling one. They were unstoppable. They were bulldozing them through. How do you know? Because the first people that they fight, right, were called the Rephium in Ezeroth Karenim. Think about the Rephium people, they say in the Bible, they say. The, that's the first tribe they defeated, right? The Rephium people were known for their height. They were nicknamed giants, right? Um, in my old church, when I was being a, being a youth pastor, there was a youth girl, youth group, youth group member, female student. She was adopted, but her adopted step, adopt, her stepdad, I think was literally a giant. He towered over, he was like this tall, this big. He was like a living embodiment of Goliath, right? And the Raphim were people with that kind of DNA. They weren't, you know, the standard Asian, Korean American, short legs, right? No offense to Korean American, because I can say that. Short legs and short, short, short arms, right? Right? They were giants. They were sitting out of a giants. But Elam and his crony says, no problemo. I will bulldoze over them. And they kicked the giants' butt. Right? No problem. And they go to city by city, town by town, demolishing them. 
and after demolishing them, taking all their you know, wealth and possessions as pillage. King of Sodom, King of Gomorrah, and three of his other neighbors say, Hey, let us not wait for the battle to come our way. We hear Elam is coming and it, with his friends. Rather than waiting for Elam to come and demolish us, we're going to join forces, the five of us, King of, King of Sodom, King of Gomorrah, and three of his neighbors, we're going to join forces and we're going to, we're going to attack first. We're going to meet them at the Valley of Sidon. Right? The very brave thing. Can you imagine, like, King of Sodom, King of Gomorrah, riding their troops up. Look, they only have four kings. We have five. We, are, we outnumber them. We can certainly win. And they rouse up their nations, and they go to meet Elam and his buddies, the king of Sodom. And what happens at the Valley of Sodom? King of Sodom, King of Gomorrah, and his three buddies get their butt whooped. Elam was unstoppable, just like the New England Patriots. Right? And so they lose. And people were like, the soldiers and the kings and the soldiers were supporting Saddam and Gomorrah. They flee. Right? And because the king of Alam and his buddies defeated Saddam and Gomorrah, they come into their city and they took possession of all the treasures of the city. And they capture Lot, Abraham's nephew. Why? Because I would imagine, because Abraham, because Lot was filthy rich, right? They captured, captured, captured Lot, took all his possessions, and they are, they are moving towards back to Allah. One of the army men who were served Sodom and Gomorrah, he lived. And he went to Abram and told Abram about what is happening to Lot. So that, and, and then we're going to talk about it later, but Lot, Abraham, you know, gathers together special forces of 318 men, and he goes and rescues Lot. So, that is the background of what is happening. But let's talk about some of the significance of what this background has, again, has to, have for us here this morning. The first thing that we've got to understand, number one, is the Valley of Sidon, the great war that is happening in Genesis chapter 14, it happened within the land of Canaan. It happened within the land where God promised Abram. Remember, the, the God's deal with Abram was, I go leave your father's household, go leave everything that you know, and go to the land that I promised you. And Abram came to the land that God promised him. But what awaited him in this land that God told him to go to? War. Came to war. There was war and violence in that land. Like I said, we think, right, if God tells us to go to certain places, then it's going to be all cherry and peachy and rosy and no problem whatsoever. That's not true. Abraham came to this land, land of violence. Then the question we have to ask ourselves is, was God wrong when he sent Abraham to this land? Did God know what, what was going to happen in this land when he sent Abram? I think he did. Now the question is, why did God send Abram to this land, a land full of violence and pain? It is because God sent him there, not, so that, not because Abraham was going to inherit that land as it is, but God sent him there because that land is a land that, that God promised Abraham's, Abraham and his descendants in the future. God promised that land to Abraham, not as, a, as, 
how that land actually is, which is full of violence and tribes. But he probably sent Abraham to that land because that land will belong to Abraham and his future descendants. It is for God's future promise that God sent Abraham to that land, not that land as it is. Are you with me? That is why in Hebrews chapter 11, it says Abraham never really settled in that land all throughout his life. He built tents around, around the area until, the, until his dying days. Why? Because Abraham knew the land that God sent him as is, is not the land that God is going to promise him. The land God is going to promise him lies in the future. That's why Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Faith is an assurance of what we hope for and certainty of what we do not see. Abraham knew that that land that he went to was not going to be complete within his lifetime. In fact, Abraham died before he could see his descendants ruling that land. What the condition of that land didn't matter to him. What mattered is that his belief and faith, that what God was going to do through him and through his descendants through that land. How does it apply to us? The people of God, the children of God, they are heirs of the kingdom of God. We are heirs of this world, right? God one day is going to establish his kingdom, a new, new heaven and new earth in this world. This world is the world in which God is going to build his new kingdom. Our final destination is not heaven. Our final destination is a renewed, this renewed world, this world. And this world, the renewed world, belongs to us, the children of God. A new heaven and a new earth. This world is the world that we wait for, is the world that we hope in. It is not the world as it is. Because much like Canaan during the time of Abraham, this world is full of war. Do you understand? This world is not the world, this world as its current form is not, our, it's not God's promised world because this world is full, it, it, it's, it's a, it's, this world is a spiritual war field. And you don't, I mean, you don't have to just be really all spiritual to know that this world is currently full of war and disagreements. Turn on the news and you will see that this world is full of conflicts. They are countries who are literally at war with one another. They are people who are attacking. They are people who are bombing each other. Look at the Middle East. It's a chaotic. It's chaos. There's war there. There are physical wars there. Not only are there physical wars, there are political wars. Look at the news. Right? I, like I said, you know, what I do I, when, I, when, I, when I drive to work right, is I, Fox News, CNN, Fox News, CNN. They are at odds with one another. The progressives versus the conservatives. The Democrats versus the Republicans. This country is, is divided with, with political war. Not only is there political war, there's economic war, right? People say the top 1%, like what top 1%, how much do they own? Like majority of the you know, the majority of the wealth of this nation is owned by a handful of men in the top 1%. And 
And people, you know, like people who are not in that 1% want to take money away from them, income redistribution. There is economic war. Those who support capitalism and those who support socialism. There's culture wars, right? People who hold on to the liberal progressive social agenda and evangelical Christians who do oppose them. There's abortion, pro-life, pro-choice. It is a constant state of war, our culture. But these wars that this world is going through, that's not the real war that God warns us against. The real war that is happening in this world that, that is damaging and crippling everything and everyone in this world is, is, is of spiritual nature. Let's go. One second. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and bone, he's saying our enemies are not, our true enemies are not human beings. Our true human being, our true enemies are not the people who persecute you or who mistreat you. That's not our true enemy. That's what Paul is saying. Our true enemies are authorities and powers of this dark world, evil forces in this dark world that kills people. Paul says that battle is absolutely real. It's more important, that battle is more important than any other political, cultural, physical war that is out there because truly people are dying because people are losing spiritual warfare. This world as it is, is full of war. Spiritual war. And there are casualties. There are everyday casualties of this war. Specifically, what does Paul describe? Who are the three main enemies that are killing the people in this world? Three, enemy, three enemies, according to Ephesians chapter 2. They are the devil. The devil, who is an absolute, real, personified force of evil. The system of the world. The carefully calculated, crafted values and cultures of this world. And three, our unbelieving flesh. Our flesh that is led by our desires, that give no deference to the truth. The, the, our desire that only feels and that are always hungry and that leads us. These are the three enemies and forces that are, that are, that, that, that are attacking us spiritually. The devil, the world, and our flesh. They wage constant, personal, intimate war against the people. How do you know? But Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul says our struggle, the word struggle means wrestling. The word struggle he has in mind is like Roman Greco wrestling. Have, have you guys ever been a wrestler? Because my gym, right, we have like wrestling, boxing classes and wrestling classes. And I just take the boxing classes because I don't want to take MMA wrestling classes because it's just way too intimate. There are dudes who are like sitting on top of each other in this form and they're just rocking. You go, whoa. They are just in it, right? Just like there's no space, like personal space. That's what Paul means, struggle. The devil and the world and your flesh, 
is up in your face every single day wanting to destroy you, wanting to destroy your marriage, wanting to destroy your relationship with your children. This is the battle, Paul says, that is real. Jordan Peterson, the you know, controversial intellectual, says, 20th century is perhaps one of the worst centuries of mankind because unspeakable wars and atrocities happened in the 20th century. Some of you may disagree with me, I see some of you, but it wasn't a rosy, 20th century wasn't a rosy century. Two world wars, <laughs> the Vietnam War, genocide, just crazy. And he says, Peterson says, the, re the reason why 20th century was so horrible was not only because of a handful of men like Stalin and Hitler did evil things. No, he says. He says, the whole century was horrible because every single human being that lived in that century chose to violate moral, moral, moral prerogatives. They choose to follow their own devices, do their own thing, and therefore this whole century suffered because of it. 20th century is a horrible century because people, give in, people lose spiritual battle against the forces of the enemy. So, you know, my job, I'm talking my job again. One of, my, one of the requirements of my job is I have to do 50 hours of pro bono service a, a year, 50 hours. You know how long that is, 50 hours, that's long. And so I gotta go volunteer at, you know, free legal clinics, and, but I love doing it. I absolutely love it. I went there last month, I gotta go this Saturday, and I go the Saturday at the end of the month. I gotta go constantly to do free legal clinic. And when you go to free legal clinic, you, you don't represent the rich and the wealthy. You, you represent the poor and the downcast. And so last, like last month I went to the homeless shelter, not homeless shelter, like free legal clinic. And I was like talking to this guy who made a wreck out of his life. Like he got called by the police because he was trying to get into the motel room that he was sharing with his girlfriend. His girlfriend like locked him out. He was pounding the door, please call them for, you know, disturbing the peace. The restraining order, the works, his life is a wreck. And I said, did you love this person? He said, yeah, man, see, see, me love this person. And what happened? Relationship was sour. And so, like, he is in the midst of a drama between the baby, the baby mama and the courts and all, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mess, it's a mess. I'm listening to his story, and I can help him legally. And I said, I mean, I thought to myself, I didn't say this to him. I, I said to myself, I can help him legally. I can help him, like, kind of iron out his issues with the court, right? But I, what I can't fix is the problem that really mattered. What's the problem? The relationship between him and his baby mama, right? I can't fix that. No amount of my expert legal knowledge can ever fix that. That's, what's That's what is causing him pain. Legal stuff, yeah, that matters, but what's causing him most pain is the spiritual brokenness in his relationship with his, with his girlfriend. And I, got to, I started thinking about all the different types of other you know, volunteer activities, whether it, whether it is doctors, right, or whether it is accountants. Do accountants help people? 
guess, right? You don't have no offense, accountants. No matter what kind of pro bono, like the homeless activities that you do, as great as they are, you can't fix what is the most important thing that is ailing people, which is their spiritual brokenness. What is killing our lives? What is making us so depressed and miserable and angry and all these things? It comes from the spiritual force, the spiritual battle. And it doesn't matter what you have, and it doesn't matter what you achieve, and it doesn't matter what name you have for yourself in this life. If you lose the spiritual battle, no matter what you have, what you achieve, your life will be miserable. Not only miserable, your life will be used to destroy other people. My life will be used to destroy other people if you lose spiritual warfare. Once again, Pat Paul says, this world as it is, is a battleground, is a war field. Do not think that this place is a place where you settle. This place is not the place you settle. This place is a place where you wage war. And if you lose this war every day, there are grave consequences. But the problem is, we're not aware of the spiritual battle, right? You think, oh, PJ, just like voodoo talk. There's no spiritual battle. People, most people, are oblivious to the spiritual realities of their lives. Most people are oblivious to Satan's attacks. Most people are oblivious to the lies that the world promotes. Most people are oblivious to the desires of their flesh that kills their relationship with God. Why is this? Why are most people oblivious to the things that are hurting them? It is because the people of the world are worldly. Just like Lot was worldly. Let's go back to Lot. Why is Lot in this predicament? predicament? Right? Lot is in this predicament because he chose to go to Sodom and Gomorrah to settle there. Remember Genesis chapter 13? No? Like a third of you weren't here last week? Shame on you? Let's review Genesis chapter 13. There were conflicts between Abram's people and Lot's people because they're becoming really rich. And Abram said, hey, you know, let's, let's because, let, because we're family, let's not fight, right? So let's, you know, divide the land. Choose which, where, choose, like, what, where you want to settle in this land. If you choose left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. And it says, Lot looked to the, valley, to, to the rivers of the Jordan Valley, and it says, it looked great. It looked pleasing to the eyes. He looked up, and the, and the area that he chose near Sodom and Gomorrah was like the Garden of Eden. was like the land of Egypt. It was beautiful. Evidently, it's like Irvine, California. Evidently, Irvine, California is like a lovely place to live, right? 70 degrees all the time. Let's go all go to Irvine. It's like Irvine, California. Water, beauty, palm trees. Lot looked up, saw that part of the land was beautiful, and he says, I'm going to go over there. Lot followed his eyes. And because Lot followed his eyes, he landed in Sodom and Gomorrah, and when Alam and his people came to invade Sodom and Gomorrah, he was taken captive. Lot, in his current predicament, because he is worldly. And that's the definition. 
what Lot did is the very definition of worldliness. Worldliness is being preoccupied with what you see and wanting to boast of what you have, which is also very visible. How do you know? That's what 1 John chapter 2 is about, right? 1 John chapter 2, what does it say? What does it say for 1 John chapter 2, verses 15? Verses 15. John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, love for the Father is not in you. For everything in the world, the craving of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, their boasting about what they have and do, comes not from the Father, but from the world. John chapter 2, verse 15. Worldliness are people who are primarily defined, who primarily are moved by what they see and wanting to boast in what they have, which is also very visible. visible. Lot was unaware of the drama that is happening around Sodom and Gomorrah in that country because he was worldly. Most people out there are totally oblivious to the spiritual forces that are killing them because they are worldly, because they're so obsessed about what they see and wanting to have what they want. You understand? Why do we not give room for God? I preach about it every Sunday. We should worship God privately. Why do we not do it? It is perhaps, it is because, maybe it is because we are worldly. What we see and the desire to achieve things that are visible, maybe these things are much more important than spiritual reality. And I can preach about this because I was a worldly fella. Right? I was a worldly fellow until maybe, maybe seven years ago, right? I, I, I was having lunch with one of my old church guys. And he said, oh, PJ, remember, remember you? You used to have a BMW, right? A six-pack, right? Like, like and, and drove around, like, you're a lawyer, you're all that. And I looked at him and said, man, that guy was a tool. What an idiot that guy was. I never had a six-pack, by the way. Just, just patty, right? I was worldly. I served God. But I can honestly say, what drove me primarily, even less than a decade ago, was, was, was getting what I had. I had a certain vision of what I needed to have in this world. There's a certain image that I wanted to project in this world, right? Like a successful lawyer. And I couldn't admit it at the time, but that's what kind of drove me a lot of stuff, a lot of decisions that I did. Why would I buy a BMW? Because it's so affordable and economical? No, because I wanted to be a tool. No one has BMW here right away, right? Good, good. I'm not offending anyone. Isn't that what it is? We're so preoccupied in what we see. In getting what we see. We want to build ourselves a little kingdom based upon what we see. And therefore, we have no room for the things of God. And Satan knows this. So how does he distract you and me? He throws worldliness to you. Look, 1984. I love that book, 1984. It's about a totalitarian government, right? And one of my favorite parts of that book was 
It says, how does the government, if the government is so totalitarian and, and, and cruel, why don't people rise up? That was a question. And one of the reasons why, is why people don't rise up against a totalitarian government in that book is, is because the government gave him, gave him three things. Alcohol, sports, and pornography. Right? And, and, and the government can control the populace by sports and pornography. Just be, let them be preoccupied with what they see. If they're so preoccupied with what they see, losing their freedom is not a big deal as long as they are constantly being distracted by what they see. By the way, I love sports, right? I'm not thinking against sports. But this is an example of what that is. The government controls people by giving them visual things to live for. Satan throws things at you and say, hey, live for that visual thing. Live for that house in the suburbs. You gotta achieve a certain thing. Hey, that's what his life is about. Worldliness. Worldliness doesn't necessarily have to do with just owning possessions. Worldliness also has to do with believing Right? There's a certain education, political system, or whatever, believing that a certain political system or values or education can save the world. That's also worldliness. I'll give you an example. On Friday, Friday is paralegal talk, right? So I talked with my paralegals, and we had a huge discussion about politics, which I should never do, right? But at the, at the end of the conversation, what is clear was my young paralegals, they're smart as a whip. They believe, right, that what will save the world will be a better political system. Better education, free education, free universal health care, free everything. That will make the world a better place. That's the solution. That's the salvation. Thinking that certain changes of systems or values, education, whatever, thinking that will change the world, that is also worldliness. Because the only thing, the only one who can save us from the spiritual warfare that is killing the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. The world is a hellish place because people are losing their spiritual battles. Therefore, Jesus came to rescue us. Jesus came to rescue us just as Lot res Abraham rescued Lot. So let's go back to the rescue. So Abraham knew about Lot's predicament. And, what, and, and this guy who, like, who barely fled in a losing fight came to Abraham and said, your nephew Lot was taken. Once again, who are the enemies? They were the New England patriots of the, of the Mediterranean Sea. Right? They were the New England Patriots. They were unstoppable. That's right. Th that's right, Milton. Good. Right? How can you defeat? They were the, the they beat giants. They beat all the tribes. They're unstoppable. How are they going to beat him? How is he going to rescue Lot from their hands? Once again, review last week. Abraham was a calculating guy. He's also very smart. He can always like, do like, cost-benefit analysis. If I go, I die, Lot dies, wife will become a widow. And I'm not going to be a father of great nations. 
Therefore, I shouldn't go. Right? He could have th- thought that. What did, what did Abraham do? Did he do a cost-benefit analysis? No. When he heard his, lot was, his nephew was captured, he gathered together 318 men who was born of his household. It doesn't mean he had 318 sons. It means you know, the slave, like his servants and the slaves, they had kids. And he gathered 318 of them. And they went against the army of King of Allah. Why? A couple of reasons. Number one, because Abraham loved Lot. Because Lot was, his, was, was family. Lot was like his son. And when his son, like figure, is suffering, there is no cost-benefit analysis. You go. And two, Abraham went. He knew he only had 318 men. Abraham went because he remembered the promises of God. And what are the promises of God? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Abraham remembered the promises of God. And that promise was real. That promise is what he held on to. That promise is a certainty that gave him confidence to do what he, what he could do. He had no idea what he was going to do with 318 men, but he knew God was going to save him. He relied on the promises of God. And he went. God gave him wisdom. He divided 318 men, and they attacked them at night in two fronts. And the New England patriots, they crumbled. The undefeatable army was defeated by 318 men because God was with them. This is very similar to the way Jesus Christ saves us. When he looks at us, he knew we are held captive by the spiritual forces of this world. Just like Lot was held captive by, by, by an imposing, powerful enemy, Jesus knew that all of us were were held captive by the devil, the lies of the world, and our unbelieving flesh. Though we are made in the image of God and though we are made for God, we, we do not live for him because we're held captive by these forces. Rather than doing a cost benefit analysis, what if, what if Jesus did cost-benefit analysis? Let, let, let's look at PJ here. Right? Arrogant, worldly, sometimes very mean fella. Right? I'm very self-aware, by the way. And I can't tell you the sins that I commit. If God knows. And let's, he, he's this. And, and what does God call me to do? He called me to endure the wrath, his wrath, for this guy. If he was a think, if he was a wise worldly man, Jesus would never have. I would have never passed his cost benefit analysis. Forget cost benefit analysis. His son is being held captive. So Jesus comes to rescue a person like myself. Jesus comes to rescue a person like yourself. 
He knows that you're in prison. He knows that the lies that you are imprisoned to, he knows the schemes that you're imprisoned to, he knows the desires that you're imprisoned to, and he knows very well that you cannot save yourself. So he comes. And like Abraham, he remembers God's promise where God will be glorified through his death, through his obedience. So Jesus comes knowing that promise. And how did he deliver you? Rather than waging a battle like Abraham did against spiritual forces, he, he wins by dying. He wins by being crucified. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. You guys have your Bibles? I'll give you like one minute. Go to, open your phones to Romans chapter 6, 6. Romans chapter 6, 6. Paul says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we shall no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, our old self was crucified with Christ on the cross. The old self that Paul is referring to here is the old self that was being captive to Satan, that's being captive to our sinful desires, that's being captive, being persuaded by the lies of the world. That is the old self. And when Christ died on that cross, bearing the wrath of God, he took this old self with us, with him, and he destroyed it with himself. Do you understand? Cross's death on the cross is not just a symbolic gesture of forgiveness. It is the very instrument in which the forces that, are, that, 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 that held us captive has been destroyed. The only reason why if we can live for the things of God, the things of God make sense to us, and the only way that we, we know the truth and live in accordance to the truth is because our old captors have been killed. Yesterday, my daughter was watching Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 6, right? And, I was, and by the grace of, by the providence of God, I walked into the room in that part where Dumbledore state explained to Snape why Harry had to die. Dumbledore said, Harry has element of Dumbledore inside of him. When his mother protected him, when Dumbledore killed his mom, part of Dumbledore went inside Harry, right? And therefore, in order for Harry to defeat Dumbledore, Harry to defeat who? Voldemort. Voldemort, I'm sorry. Voldemort, in order for Harry to... No, yeah, that'd be, that'd be interesting. If in order for Harry to defeat Voldemort, Harry had to die. The part of the thing that Harry had inside of him has to die. The thing that held us captive to the devil, to the flesh, to the world, has to die. We can't kill it ourselves. Christ killed it when he went up to the cross. And when you believe in him, when you truly believe in him, 
you, have, you are set free. You are set free. That's how you know you're a Christian, you know. You discover there are things about you that were, chain, that were, that were chaining you. But now you're free. You used to be this way, but now you're not because you've been set free. You used to desire this, but now you don't because you've been set free. You used to think about certain things, but now you don't because you've been set free. Are you set free? Are you set free from your captor? Jesus has come to set you free. Jesus not only sets you free in one ultimate reality, in one ultimate event. Jesus delivers you every single day. He not only did this ultimate rescuing on the cross, it's true, but to those people whom he has delivered, he, continuously to, he continues to deliver every single day. Do you know this? Paul says, every day, put on the armor of God because every day is a fight, every day is war, and guess what? Every day you can be delivered. Being a Christian means to be delivered every day. You do quiet time, you do private worship, not only because God is worthy and it's true, but you also do private worship because it is through your private worship that He delivers you. The Christian experience is a life of deliverance every single day. And if you do not arm yourself with the armor of God, you will fail. Christianity is the truth about deliverance, about rescue. Not only does he rescue us in an ultimate way, in an every, in eternal way, in an everyday way, Jesus can also use us to deliver other people out of their darkness. Do you know that? We can be instruments of deliverance to other people. Abraham used 318 men to deliver his nephew against an unstoppable force. If you look at the Bible again, it's clear Moses, when he wrote it, he wanted to make a clear presentation that these kings, these enemies, were incredibly strong. And he purposely used, put the word 318 there to compare the forces, the force of the enemy, and the saving vessels of 318 men. God used 318 men to deliver, to, 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 to stop an unstoppable force. Why did he do that? for the sake of his glory, because in the Bible, you know, God uses the smallest things to do the mightiest work. You know this? That's one of the major themes of the Bible. He uses seemingly very insignificant small things to do the mightiest of works. What are some of the examples? David and his slingshot killed Goliath, the giant. Moses' staff split open the Red Sea. Gideon, with his 300 men, destroyed the enemies of God. New Testament, 
God used 11 fishermen with no education. They didn't go to Harvard. They didn't go to UVA. They didn't go to Mason. They didn't go, they didn't go to Nova. He used 11 uneducated men to build his kingdom in this world. Right? He uses small things to do mighty works. We can be that small thing that God can use to change other people's lives. What are we? I love you, and I think of the world of you, but you're not all that. I'm not all that. How can you persuade unbelieving men and women who are imprisoned by Satan and the world and their flesh to believe in Jesus Christ? How can you do that? Logically, it doesn't make sense. But in the hands of God, you can be used to be delivered, to deliver other people from their sins. In fact, God commands us to be used by Him to deliver people out of darkness. God can do whatever He wants to deliver people, but He chooses to use us. If you are a Christian, you are called to be the instrument of deliverance. How do you become an instrument of deliverance? Sunday school answer, Bible and prayer. Bible is so small, it's in your phone. It's in your phone. It's, in, it's here. It's in here. But when you open it up, when you study it, when you know it, and when you declare God with it, He can use it to save other people. Prayer, anyone can pray. It's so hard to pray. I mean, the physical act of prayer is not that hard. Just stand up or sit or whatever you do, you can pray. God can use prayer to change people. My father wrote me a letter this week. Like, I don't know whether you know what my father is going through. My father is going through something very difficult. And my whole prayer was always about God showing him the light. My prayer was never really about getting him out of where he is. That was initially the, my prayer in the beginning. But it switched to let, God, let my father see your light in where he is. And he wrote a letter that says, I'm experiencing the grace of God here. And when I read that letter, I started crying. Because God used this little prayer that I lifted up in my mustard-colored basement to shine his light in my father's eyes. You can be an instrument. You don't need to be smart. You don't need to be persuasive. You just need to walk with him. There's this pastor named Margaret Court in Australia. She was like an Australian tennis champion. And she's, doing a, she's a pastor now. And tremendous things are happening in her, in her ministry. Like cancers are getting miraculously healed. Right? Suicidal people are, are delivered from their depressing thoughts. These unspeakable miracles happen in her church. An interview asked, how, do you, how are you doing this? And she says... All I'm doing is spending time with the Lord. All I'm doing is spending time with the Lord, and because I do, He's so real. 
He is more real than you who, are, who is interviewing me right now. God is so real. When God became so real, you know what happens? That, that relationship with God, between her and God, it starts to resonate out of her. It starts affecting other people. I guarantee you, start worshiping God, spend time with Him, be intimate with Him, and you can start to become this amazing vessel that God can use to change other people's lives. You can be one of those 318 men who delivered, who defeated the, the unstoppable enemy. That's the calling. That's the purpose of the life of the Christian. The purpose of the life of the Christian is not to build things for yourself in this fallen world. It is to wage battle against the spiritual forces, being delivered by Christ, and to be used by Him to deliver others from the spiritual battles. Christian, that is your purpose. Will you obey God's purpose? Let's pray. Are you aware of the spiritual battles that are waging against you? Are you are you aware of the preaching of the enemy? Are you aware of the lies of the culture and systems of the world? Are you aware of your fallen desires that are always turning you against God? The struggles that you are going through is real. But so is his deliverance. He can deliver you out of your struggles. Because that is what Christ has come to do. If you are struggling with... With, with, with the attacks of the enemy, ask the Lord Jesus to deliver you. Through his word, through your prayers, ask him to deliver you. If you are worldly, if you are primarily defining yourself based upon what you see and what you have or what you want to have, maybe you're very worldly. And the way that you become delivered out of being worldly you can't do it on your own. Christ has, have to, Christ has to give you a new set of eyes. Ask for a new set of eyes. And also, ask the Lord to use you. The people in your life, they're, they're, God placed them there so that you, he, he can use you to deliver them out of darkness. Ask the Lord to give you the opportunity and the wisdom to, to, to reach out to the lost people in your life so that you can help be a vessel to deliver them out of their darkness. For these things, let us pray.